Yarostan's Last Letter Dear Sophia, I don't deserve your pity. I've been blind. For over twenty years, I've been nothing more than an apologist for a repressive ideology. You tell me you don't have a vantage point from which to criticize my attitudes. The events I experienced here yesterday convinced me I never had a vantage point from which to debunk what I called your illusions, or Louise's for that matter. I parted with my own illusions far more stubbornly than you parted with yours. Yasna and I had to experience one shock after another before either of us were willing to admit we were wrong, and had always been wrong, about Titus Zebron. The extent to which we were wrong went far beyond Myrna's or Yara's dreams. I can now answer all the questions you and Sabina have been asking for the past few months. I can now tell you why Titus didn't mention to me the letter you sent us during the Magarna uprising, and why Titus wasn't arrested with the rest of the carton plant crew 20 years ago. From the time I sent you my last letter until yesterday, Yara treated me as an enemy. Her hostility toward me during the entire two weeks was as intense as the hostility she had briefly expressed toward me the last time she visited me in prison, shortly after Vesna's death. She made it a point not to be home when I was. She left her room whenever I entered it. A few days after our trip to the clearing, when she was still wearing a bandage over her jaw, we were both in the kitchen at the same time. I told her I was sorry about the blow I had given her. Yara's response to my apology was, I'm sorry I have to share this house with you. You're hateful. She turned her back to me and stormed out of the kitchen. During the entire past two weeks, Yara's attitude toward me remained what Myrna's had been on the night after our outing to the clearing. Yara wanted me to move to the shed where Myrna had once housed her sick mother. I tried to make myself understand Yara's attitude as a healthy rebellion against her father but I couldn't make myself understand the specific cause for her rebellion, namely her hysterical attempt to copulate with her own father. Consequently, although I did try to apologize for having hit her, I did not make a serious attempt to be her friend. On occasions when she didn't turn her back to me, I turned mine to her. One result of our mutual hostility was that I failed to observe what Yara and Myrna were doing during those two weeks, and when their plot started to unfold, I was taken completely by surprise. Because of my antagonism, I gave the worst possible interpretation to the few things I did see. For example, early one morning, after she had removed the bandage from her jaw, Yara left the house wearing the same costume she had worn to the dance at Myrna's plant, and to the outing to Myrna's clearing. I asked Myrna, for whose benefit is she performing her Sabina role this time? She's going to a lecture given by the famous Vera Krenna, Myrna told me. In that costume? And why not in that costume? Haven't she repeatedly written Sophia that we were all acting under the influence of what we learned from her letters? Myrna asked me, hypocritically sweet, but barely disguising her sarcasm. You don't mean to tell me Yara is acting on what we've learned about Vera's infatuation with Sabina 20 years ago? Why else would she be wearing that costume? Myrna asked, irking me with the playfulness of her tone. I was furious. I immediately drew the worst possible conclusion. You're a genuine maniac, Myrna. How can you put your own daughter up to something so vile? I suppose you'll send her looking for a narcotics dealer next. Yarastan, you're a genuine saint, she told me with the same exaggerated sweetness, just like my mother. But my own daughter, it turns out, has a mind of her own and doesn't need me to put her up to anything. Are you forgetting you called her my doctor? Of course I now see that Myrna's sarcasm was perfectly justified. I was an absolute hypocrite. When I had read the letters in which you had described your experiences in the garage, I had been unreservedly sympathetic to Sabina, Tissy, and, quote, their world. Yet when I imagined that Myrna, as well as 12-year-old Yara, were beginning their careers as prostitutes, I reacted the same way Myrna's mother had reacted to her devils. Myrna's behavior during the past two weeks was even more incomprehensible to me than Yara's. The day after Yara's departure in her Sabina costume, both were out when I came home from the carton plant. Myrna returned about an hour after I finished a lonely supper. I could barely recognize her. I stared at her, speechless, fascinated, and repelled. She had transformed herself into a phenomenon I had never seen on the streets of this city, a phenomenon I had seen only in foreign motion pictures, a human body for sale, a sensual commodity. As soon as she saw my expression, she did all she could to provoke and deepen my shocked disbelief. She paraded herself in front of me, initiating the postures, the walk, and the gestures of professional high-class prostitutes we had seen in movies. Instead of the usual bag hanging on a shoulder strap, she carried a small leather purse, she wore shoes with high heels and nylon stockings, neither of which she'd ever worn before. Her bright skirt ended above her knees. 
Between her waist and her shoulders she wore a tight-fitting sweater that accentuated the contours of her large breasts. Her hair was exotically stacked on her head in the shape of a cake. I convinced myself that Myrna, once having rejected her mother's repressive caution, had taken it into her head to relive every experience in Sabina's life and to invent additional possibilities of her own. I had admired Sabina. I had written you that I considered her world to be mine when you had described her life's experiences to me. Yet I stared at Myrna with revulsion. I knew I was being a hypocrite. I knew I couldn't justify my revulsion, even to myself. I went to our bedroom with tears in my eyes, saying nothing to Myrna, ignoring her until she joined me in bed, at which time I turned my back to her. Because of the false conclusions I drew, I felt like a stranger in my own house. I thought both Myrna and Yara were setting out on liberated careers as courtesans or prostitutes, and I didn't have the nerve to ask either of them any questions. After our recent outing and our unsuccessful confrontation with Titus, I felt as estranged from Myrna and Yara as I had felt after my release from prison three years ago. At that time, Myrna had rushed to work and back, tended to the old sick woman, and slept, indifferent to my presence, perhaps even resentful about the fact that I represented yet another burden. And Yara had avoided me after she had ascertained that I would not have been less willing than Titus to give Vesna to the doctors. My sympathy for Yara's political activities in her school had put an end to her disappointment in me, but my behavior in the clearing revived and deepened her disappointment and transformed it into hostile distrust. From her own point of view, she was perfectly justified. I had been repelled by the possibility of incestuous love with my own daughter. Such a possibility had never crossed my mind, and my whole being rejected it as alien and repulsive. But Yara is Myrna's daughter. She's known for years that Myrna, at Yara's age, had shared her bed with her brother and had desired him. To Yara, this seemed perfectly understandable and normal. She's also heard Myrna express her love for her own father and even her desire for sexual intercourse with him. I've also been familiar with Myrna's expressed desires. I learned about some of them from Jan as long as 20 years ago. I've also learned to take them for granted as perfectly normal. I've known that Myrna never actually realized her incestuous wishes, and I took them for granted as the sexual fantasies of a little girl. But when Myrna communicated her desires to her two daughters, she frightened the older one into a puritanical hysteria while creating in the younger an unquenchable desire to realize all of Myrna's unfulfilled wishes. I felt estranged from my companions, and I made no attempt to communicate with them. During the past week and a half, I dragged myself to work and back. I transferred my life's interest to the activity taking place in the carton plant, to the contacts being created by workers along the production line in order to explore new ways of decreasing the amount of time we spent working. As soon as the workday ended, I lost all my enthusiasm, dragged myself to a house which I knew would be empty, and waited with apprehension to one or the other courtesan to return. I even considered the possibility of renting a room, letting my companions develop their new selves without me. I felt I no longer had anything to contribute with my presence in the house. I told myself that Myrna, 29 years old and fresh out of a condition of drudgery that was maiming her, would then be completely free to satisfy every conceivable passion and drama in her exquisitely constructed settings. And I started to doubt that Yara and I could continue to live under the same roof. I wanted to apologize for having hit her, for having kicked Zednik, but not for having disappointed her. Sabina's motto, everything is allowed, no longer roused my unqualified enthusiasm. I was not able to engage in sexual intercourse with my own daughter, and I felt that my continued presence in the house was a provocation to a daughter obsessed by the desire for such an experience, and to a mother who wanted to be present during the act, so as to experience vicariously an act which she considered the highest peak of enjoyment. I was afraid that the revolution of my two companions had parted ways with mine. Yesterday, all of that changed. Yesterday was Sunday, the day of Yasna's and Titus's celebration of their coming marriage. In the morning, I felt extremely irritable and apprehensive, and I was ready to talk myself out of going to the event. I remembered Yasna's having begged Myrna and Yara not to attend her celebration if they still retained their hostility towards Titus, and as far as I could see, nothing had changed in their outlook. I became even more apprehensive when, after the three of us ate lunch in silence, Yara ran to her room and returned to the living room wearing her Sabina costume. A few minutes later, Myrna turned up in the living room in her short, bright skirt, high-heeled shoes, and seductive sweater, and announced, We're ready. I accompanied them out of the house, only to avoid making a scene. I walked between two complete strangers who, with their secrets and plots and costumes, inhabited a world completely unfamiliar to me. Myrna looked odd. In one hand she carried the exquisite le little leather purse, while on the other she lugged a peasant's basket filled with the food she and Yara had spent the morning preparing. Yara carried another basket. They didn't ask me to help carry anything. My apprehension turned to anger as soon as we arrived at Yasna's. I had forgotten when the celebration was to begin, but I remembered as soon as Yasna asked why we had come an hour early. 
I knew that our early arrival was part of Myrna's plot. Yasna was in an apron and had her hair in a towel. She, too, was angry about the fact that we were there an hour early, and her suspicion was aroused. "'What in the world are you wearing?' she asked Myrna as soon as we walked in. "'Isn't she positively stunning?' Yara asked Yasna excitedly. Yasna's face fell. She rushed to the kitchen, then upstairs. Myrna shouted to her, "'Yara and I can finish whatever still has to be done in the kitchen and dining room. You just go up and get yourself ready.' Yasna hesitantly accepted Myrna's offer. Myrna and Yara carried an extra table from the kitchen to the dining room, after which they set the table, counting the places as if they knew exactly how many guests were coming. They then proceeded to unpack the food from the baskets they had brought. When Yasna came down, she exclaimed, "'Good grief, Myrna! Did you invite all the people in your plant?' "'No, Yasna. I invited all the people in yours,' Myrna told her cryptically. Yasna ran back up without responding, clearly becoming as apprehensive as I had been since that morning. We didn't have to wait long before we started to learn what Myrna meant. Fifteen minutes after our arrival, another early guest knocked at the door. Yara ran to open it, and in the doorway I recognized Comrade Vera Krenna. Yara eagerly extended both hands to the people's representative and begged her, Please do come in, Vera. The woman stepped inside without once glancing at me or at the house. She embraced Yara and said, I'm enchanted to see you again. I can't thank you enough for inviting me. Yara placed her lips near the woman's ear and whispered, The enchantment is all mine. I was certain I had been right about the function of Yara's Sabina costume, her black hair and eyebrows, her slightly exotic jacket and slacks, her studied cat-like gestures. Yasna ran down to see who else had arrived and stopped before she reached the bottom of the staircase, glaring at the couple embracing him by the doorway. Berenice, she exclaimed with surprise, almost with indignation. Vera abruptly let go of Yara and looked around for the first time. Yasna's Brokov, she announced. Glancing from Yasna to the living room and back to the staircase, she exclaimed, But this isn't Sabina Nachula's house. There's some mistake. She backed up towards the door like a cornered animal and reached for the knob. Yara blocked the door and whispered to her, It's not a mistake, Vera. Yasna started to grin as if she had caught on. She ran toward Vera and pulled her hand away from the doorknob. Aren't you going to embrace me too, Vera? I'm also Sabina Nachula's friend. Vera, on the verge of tears, hesitated briefly before she put her arm around her former housemate. I'm terribly sorry, Yasna. I didn't know where I was. It was such a shock. Yasna, still grinning, embraced Vera warmly and told her, I'm so glad you remember me, Vera. Please do stay. You're more than welcome, no matter what Yara made you think in order to get you to come. Freeing herself of Yasna's embrace, Vera turned suspiciously to Yara and asked, Then it's not true that your mother is here? It's true. She's right here, Yara shouted. She took Vera's hand and pulled Vera toward Myrna. Vera cautiously took both of Myrna's hands in hers. It's not possible, so young, so beautiful, yet so transformed. I'm charmed to see you again, Sabina. Myrna, gleaming, gleaming with pride, grinned wickedly. The pleasure is all mine, I assure you. I've looked forward to this meeting for a long time. I'm Yara's mother. But you're not Sabina, Vera at last ascertained. I felt called on to contribute. Yara is a terrible liar. Myrna, holding on to Vera's hands, obviously defended her co-conspirator. Yara wasn't exactly lying. She's my daughter, only physically. In spirit, she's Sabina's daughter, just as in spirit, I'm Sabina's sister. Then you're... I'm not anyone you've ever met. I'm Yan Sedlek's sister. Farah grabbed Yara's shoulder and said, without bitterness, Why, you little devil. Everything I told you is true in a way, Yara pleaded. I so wanted you to come. Would you have come if I told you the actual truth? No, I wouldn't, Vera admitted. Then Vera turned to me and guessed, So you must be Yan. You've changed so... Jan died in prison, I told her. I'm Yarostan. We shook hands. Yarostan Vocek! How stupid of me! Vera turned to Myrna and told her, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Twenty years is a long time, I told her. Yara is our daughter. Vera was amazed. Your daughter? But why did she bring me here? What's the occasion? Neither Yasna nor I knew she'd bring you here, I told her. Yasna told her, The occasion is a celebration of my engagement to Titus Zabram. Surely you remember him. Titus? Of course I remember him. But this is all so strange. I suppose I should congratulate you. Yasna explained to her, Myrna had promised to invite certain of Titus's old friends, but I never expected you to come. Yara, putting on the expression of a begging dog, told Vera, I hope you aren't terribly offended. No, I suppose I'm not, Vera said. I've never had a prank like this played on me. I'm starting to understand that everything you told me was true, in a way. The next arrivals were Titus and Zednik. I was surprised to see them together. Here's the groom, Zednik announced as he entered. Zednik, how nice of you to come, Yasna said. Then she told Titus, You're just in time. Myrna apparently misunderstood the time and got here an hour early. 
and one of the guests she promised is already here. Titus noticed Vera, turned stiffly to her, and said, without extending your hand, I take it you're the guest, Comrade Krenna. I hadn't imagined you'd be interested in coming here to listen to my political views. I've heard many of yours on the radio. And you don't agree with them? Vera asked. I've never believed a revolution could be launched by the top of the bureaucracy, Titus told her. Don't you think it can at least be lubricated from there? Vera asked him. I don't think I'd call that lubrication, Titus told her. Then he remembered he was at least partly a host. Do you know each other? Comrade Tabarkin, Comrade Krenna. Zednik, shaking hands with Vera, told her, Unfortunately, I only listen to the radio when I'm drunk. I hadn't seen Zednik since our outing to Myrna's clearing. At that time, I thought him too drunk to be aware of what he was doing, but I was wrong. As he shook Vera's hand, he turned his face so that neither Vera nor Titus saw him, and he winked to Yara and Myrna. That wink gave me my first clue that Zednik was in on Myrna's and Yara's game, that he had in fact been acting as their confederate since that outing. My suspicion was confirmed by the way Zednik started the next conversation. He turned to me and said, The world is amazingly small, Yarostan. Do you remember when you and I ran into each other at the political prisoners club five or six months ago? Thinking that I was spoiling the surprise he was about to reveal, I told him, Yasna and I already know you also ran into Titus at the political prisoners club, Myrna and Yara told us. Zabrin and I didn't only run into each other there, he told me. It so happens we ran into each other the same day you and I did. Isn't that a coincidence? The first time I saw Zabrin at the club was about half an hour before I saw you. As a matter of fact, I was still talking to him when I noticed you. Myrna commented, that certainly is a coincidence. I thought you didn't believe in coincidences, I said to her. Zednik continued, on our way here I was trying to remind Zabrin of that day. Zabrin and I are practically neighbors, you know. He doesn't remember that day. Of course, six months ago I had no idea you and Zabrin knew each other. I rushed to greet you. When I turned to introduce you to each other, Zabrin was gone. I was irritated by Zednik's suggestion that Titus had seen me at that meeting and avoided me. There were a lot of people at that meeting, Zednik, and I'm not surprised he didn't see me there. I didn't see him there, either. Zednik asked me, wouldn't you have turned to look if someone had shouted his name? I remembered the occasion. Z Zednik had shouted, Yarostan, very loudly. I looked toward Titus for a clue, but he was helping Yasna set the table and seemed indifferent to Zednik's coincidence. I reminded Zednik. Almost all the people in that room were shouting the names of acquaintances they recognized. I felt uneasy. I was glad when Zednik's attention turned away from me. Vera and Yara were talking quietly to each other in a corner of the living room. I wouldn't have noticed the extremely flirtatious character of their exchange if Sabina hadn't reminded me of Vera's flirtation with her 20 years ago. In Yasna's living room, the initiative was not exclusively Vera's. Yara, doing an ex excellent imitation of the little gypsy I remembered, made no effort to hide her admiration for the woman who had been the central topic of her gossip with Julia for the past year. Apparently, Yara's esteem grew when Vera became the tribune of the reformist wing of the government. Myrna, who had been pacing impatiently between the kitchen clock and the front door, sat down on the edge of the couch near Vera and Yara. Zednik also turned to listen to them. Vera was asking Yara, But why did you introduce yourself as Sabina Nachalo's daughter? Of all the people in this room, you and your mother are the only ones who didn't know Sabina. Oh, but Myrna did know Sabina, Yara protested. I do remember that Sabina and Jan were good friends. Myrna interrupted Vera. Sabina and I were more than good friends. We were almost sisters, and in some ways, much more than sisters. Vera seemed embarrassed by Myrna's tone. But when did you know Sabina? Forgive me for doubting you, but you seem so young, and I had thought Sabina had emigrated twenty years ago. Myrna, looking past Vera with her distant look, told her, Sabina and I were together for a day or two when the revolution started to break out. You mean when that owner was ousted from the carton plant? Vera asked. Suddenly she blushed intensely and turned her face away from Myrna's. She probably assumed Sabina had at that time told Myrna about Vera's secret passion. For an instant, Vera seemed very embarrassed. Abruptly changing the subject, she asked Yara politely, Do you have any brothers or sisters? Yara told her, I had a sister, but she was the exact opposite of Sabina. Her name was Vesna. And why do you say was? She died three years ago, but Yara told her. Vera reached for Yara's hand as she said, How awful. She turned to Myrna and told her, I'm so sorry. How did she die? Looking in Titus's direction, Yara said, Mr. Zabrin knows how Vesna died. He helped her. Yasna in intervened in the conversation. Titus took Vesna to the hospital. He did what everyone would have done. Myrna, who was again pacing impatiently, said, Yes, everyone would have done it except the girl's own mother and sister. No one would have believed that the girl's sister understood more about the illness than the doctors did. Yasna gave Myrna a pleading look and asked her, Did you really come to bring that up? Titus entered the conversation. He commented, without a trace of hostility, 
It is to be expected that when a patient dies, the doctors are blamed, and not the disease. Yasna tried to object to this formulation. Yara and Myrna did know, but Titus continued. Of course, given the doctor's failure to diagnose the disease in time, anyone's guess seemed equally good, but this reasoning is incorrect. The doctors proceeded on the basis of the most advanced science available to them, on the basis of objective and not instinctive analysis, with exact procedures for analyzing, isolating, neutralizing, and removing the disease. Thus all guesses were not equally valid. Only the doctor's diagnosis was capable of restoring the child's health. Yara protested, the only thing Mr. Zabrin and the doctors didn't know was that there was nothing wrong with Vesna. It was the hospital and the doctors that made her sick. They killed her. Myrna hurriedly pulled Yara to the opposite corner of the living room, near where I was standing with Zednik, and whispered, Don't start that yet, Yara. Wait until they're all here. Yara whispered, I couldn't help it. He started it. Meanwhile, Vera was asking Titus, What was wrong with the child? I don't understand. Yasna told her, There was nothing wrong with her. Unfortunately, no one believed Yara. Titus seemed irritated by Yasna's comment. Are we to believe, three years after the fact, that an eight-year-old child was more knowledgeable in medicine than the staffs of two hospitals? If nothing was wrong with the girl, this was for the doctors to determine, not for lay people unfamiliar with medicine, and certainly not an eight-year-old. Yasna objected meekly. That's not always true, Titus. In this case, Titus cut her short. Excuse me, Yasna, but it's very true in every case. The responsibility of any responsible adult is to get a sick person to a hospital, not, con not to consult a seer or a child as to whether the person's condition warrants a doctor's intervention. A reasonable person's responsibility begins and ends with putting a sick person in the care of people who are experts in disease. It is the responsibility of the experts to diagnose the disease and prescribe the cure. Unfortunately, the experts are not omniscient. They're limited by the present state of development of medical knowledge. But within this limit, it is obvious that two competent staffs of doctors understood Vesna's condition infinitely better than Yara. It is, of course, conceivable, but extremely unlikely, that Vesna's death may have been caused by a mistake on their part. I'm convinced Vesna was in a condition which couldn't be cured. Yasna persisted. You admit the doctors could have made a mistake. I'm convinced they made a terrible mistake. Vesna would still be alive today if you had listened to Yara. Titus said angrily, It is inconceivable to me that Myrna or Yara or Vesna herself could have been better informed about Vesna's health than people who specialize in the field of health. Vera asked, Am I to understand a perfectly healthy child was taken to the hospital and died there? Yasna told her, I'm sorry this came up because it's far too complicated to explain. What Titus did was what almost every reasonable person would have done. I'm the one who told Titus that Vesna was ill. She had been absent from school. Yarastan was still in prison. Myrna worked all day and supported not only her two daughters, but a paralyzed mother as well. Titus rushed to Myrna's house as soon as I told him. What he found there would have alarmed anyone. It certainly alarmed me when he described it. Vesna was in her paralyzed grandmother's bed and seemed deathly ill. She didn't eat, she had a high temperature, and she became hysterical whenever anyone threatened to remove her from the old woman's room. Vera said with conviction, It seems perfectly obvious to me that the right thing to do was to have the child see a doctor as soon as possible. I stared at Yara, with intense satisfaction, I have to admit, while Vera Krenna said these words. Yara's eyes looked at Vera with a hostility that had long been familiar to me. The romance was over. I tried to take up Yasna's argument. I wasn't home at the time, as Yasna told you. If I had been, I probably would have insisted that Vesna be taken to the hospital. But Yara and Myrna have both convinced me that the doctors did not in fact know better, that Vesna would have recovered in her own strange way if she'd been left in the old woman's room. I'm convinced she'd be among us today. Yara seemed surprised. She looked into my eyes with gratitude. She was probably surprised that I was convinced since I had only recently been ready to throw Myrna to the doctors to save her from the same sickness. But Titus was infuriated by my intervention. You don't know what you're talking about, Yarostan. Questions of health and disease are in the domain of science, not subjects for children's fairy tales or uninformed speculation. To which Vera added, I must say I emphatically agree with Titus. I simply can't imagine a sick child being left without medical care because her eight-year-old sister affirmed that she wasn't sick. I find your arguments strange, to say the least. Yasna still protested. You don't understand the specific condition Vesna was in. Yasna was interrupted by a knock on the door. Myrna ran to the door. This was the knock she had been waiting for. All eyes were on her as she stopped before opening the door, straightened her hair, pulled her sweater down tightly. She took on a relaxed pose and turned to look at us with a provocative smile before she finally reached for the doorknob. I would never have imagined her capable of such sensuous gestures, of acting like such a courtesan but my righteous shock quickly gave way to quiet laughter. The scene in the doorway became comical. A chauffeur-driven limousine of the type reserved for diplomats 
and high government officials was visible in the street, although the doorway itself was almost completely blocked by a short, extremely heavy man. He was dressed in a checkered sports jacket and white shoes, which seemed completely inappropriate on such a large man. I forget what color pants he wore. It was obvious that all his clothes had been made in the most expensive tailoring establishment, or abroad. With a chivalry that made him look grotesque, he raised Myrna's hand to his lips. I almost laughed out loud when the man bestowed a kiss on the rough hand of the woman, who had, who had not, in fact, spent her life as a courtesan, but as a factory worker. Myrna said to him, in her best cinema-learned manner, "'How exquisite!' Please do come in. Holding on to Myrna's hand as he followed her into the room, the man glanced hastily from Myrna's bosom to the feet of the other people standing in the room. He dropped Myrna's hand abruptly and whispered, with evident surprise, I had expected to find you alone. Oh, please don't be offended, Myrna begged. Every one of the people in the room is a good friend of Louisa's. I was startled. So was everyone else except Yara, who grinned mischievously. The man said to Myrna, still in a whisper, but with the authoritative tone of someone used to commanding, I had looked forward to a tete-a-tete with you, my dear, if you will do me the honor of accompanying me to a café. Myrna placed both her hands on his. I'm flattered beyond words. I'd like nothing better than a tete-a-tete with you. And afterwards we could go to a café, just the two of us. But please wait a while. When I told Louisa's other friends how charming you were, they all insisted I'd introduce you to them, and they'd simply be heartbroken if I kept you all to myself. The man started moving back to the door. I assure you I'm not in a mental or physical condition to meet Louise's friends. If you could arrange to extend your stay, at least by one day, I'm sure we could find another occasion. Myrna lifted one of his hands, pressed it tightly between her breasts, and told him with an irresistibly seductive tone, I'll do anything, anything at all, if you'll only do me the honor of letting me introduce you. Tomorrow will be too late. This is the last day we'll all be together, since I have a reservation. Please do me that favor. The man seemed defeated. He looked at the other people in the room for the first time. His face expressed shocked disbelief when his eyes focused on Vera Krenna. Pulling his hand away from Myrna's bosom, he exclaimed, You! Vera burst out laughing. Of course! Wasn't I one of Luisa's best friends? Narrowing his eyes, he asked Vera suspiciously, Are you and the so-called Reform Party behind this? I only wish we were, Vera told him. Just then Titus pulled me to the hallway between the living room and the dining room. What kind of joke is this? I had thought Myrna was going to invite workers, people like Zednik, to Barkin for a serious political discussion. I told Titus, I have no idea what Myrna and Yara are up to. I wasn't in on their game. I have no sympathy for it, and I don't know who that man is. You know perfectly well who he is, Titus said indignantly. Do you take me for a fool? Honestly, Titus, I've never seen him before in my life, I assured him. Titus then told me, That is the recently demoted member of the Central Committee of the State Planning Commission. I burst out laughing and asked very loudly, That fat man is Mark Glavney? I was immediately embarrassed by my involuntary outburst, and I looked into the living room to see if anyone had heard me. Apparently no one had, although Myrna winked at me when I looked in. My outburst was a sudden release of two weeks of tension. It suddenly dawned on me that all my speculations about Myrna's activities with her provocative costume had been wrong, that the entire masquerade had been conceived with one aim in view— to entice the demoted member of the Central Committee to Titus's and Yasna's celebration. I told T Titus, I'm awfully sorry. I really had no idea who he was. Don't apologize. I believe you, Titus said. I think I'm starting to understand. She's introducing him to the friends of Luisa Nacholo. That's very funny indeed, since he was her lover once. I said, don't hold that against him. Titus continued, I should have known better than to expect Myrna Sedlak to be serious. How well did you know her father? He was the shrewdest, most calculating peasant I ever met. Jan and Myrna both took after him, extremely shrewd pranksters. In the last analysis, they both became dilettantes, despite their peasant origins. Both of them were my closest companions, I reminded him. How well I know, he exclaimed. And I suppose you still agree with Jan. Just pushed all the machinery into the streets and play with it like little children, bosses together with workers. Myrna obviously agrees with that. She's as blind to the class struggle as Jan was. What kind of serious political discussion can take place between the highest functionaries and the lowest workers? There's obviously no possibility for political regroupment between the proletariat and its class enemies. My attention was drawn to the living room. Yasna was shouting. I distractedly whispered to Titus, I'm as surprised as you are by Myrna's bizarre choice of guests. At least old Sedlak's frame of reference was always clearly defined, he told me. I never acquired a taste for Jan's or Myrna's pranks, which always lacked a frame of reference due to the fact that they were no longer peasants, but were not yet integrated into the working class. We moved back into the living room. 
Yasna was shouting at Glavni, Don't tell me the well-being of workers is more important to you than your career. When certain workers were in prison, all of them one-time comrades of yours, you were perfectly willing to sacrifice their freedom, even their lives, to salvage your career. Mark was sitting on the couch. Myrna sat next to him and held his hand in her lap. Mark said to Yasna, I have no, no idea what you're talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about, Yasna snapped. Twelve years ago, every single person in this room, right now, except Myrna and Yara, was arrested. A letter had come from what the police called the Albert Spy Ring. We now know one copy of the letter was delivered to an official, namely to you. And you cleared yourself by charging the others with being agents of that so-called spy ring. Mark responded patiently. I remember the arrests, comrades Broca, but the story of a spy ring is new to me. It's not new to any of us, Yasna shouted. Your former mistress, Luisa Nacholo, was supposed to be one of the international leaders of that ring. I was told such a story after my first arrest 20 years ago, Mark admitted, but I could never make myself believe Luisa was capable of such activity. Comrade Glavny, you're a big hypocrite, Yasna shouted. When your career was in question, you didn't only pretend to believe Luisa was an international spy. You went on to accuse others of being her accomplices. Myrna took up her guest's defense with a hypocrisy that infuriated Yasna. What you're saying seems completely illogical, comrades Broca. If Mark genuinely believed, or even pretended to believe, that Luisa Nachalo was an international spy, would he have come here for a get-together with the best friends of, of that accomplice to an international spy? Then Myrna turned to Mark and asked him, Could you be so charmed by me as to be willing to endanger your entire career for my sake? You're being positively hateful, Yasna shouted at Myrna. Jan was killed because of this man. Yaristan and Adrian were given long prison terms because they had supposedly tried to incriminate such a high personage as M comrade Mark Glabney. If you're talking about the rehabilitation proceedings, I must point out that it wasn't I, but comrade Krenna and her husband who initiated them. As he said this, Mark made a slight bow in the direction of Vera. Vera jumped. You're quite an expert at making insinuations and starting rumors, aren't you, comrade Glabney? Mark showed a trace of anger for the first time. Pardon me, Comrade Krenna. It's common knowledge that you and Professor Kren initiated. Vera hissed at him. Before something becomes common knowledge, it is maliciously circulated rumor, and rumors begin somewhere. They have a specific origin. Mark cut in. Comrade Kren initiated the rehabilitation proceedings as soon as... I'm not talking about that stupid arrest, Vera shouted. I'm talking about the current rumors. There are some people who'd love to drag my name through the mud, and almost all of them are members of that conservative bureaucratic clique you're aligned with. Mark commented, I believe your husband is similarly aligned. Precisely, Vera shouted, and the rumors have already reached his ears. He must have larger ears than mine, Mark told her. I have no idea what rumors you're referring to. Your speeches discredit you amply enough. Vera continued, There are very few people in the world who know anything of my private life. Surely you're exaggerating, Mark said. Your affair with the Standard of Living Commissioner has been a public secret for a very long time. You hardly keep it to a small number of people. Vera said darkly, You know perfectly well that's not what I'm talking about, Comrade Glavny. You're one of the very few people who could possibly be at the source of the vicious slander that's being circulated about me, that malicious rumor about my affair with Adrian being a mere cover for an altogether different type of relationship. Your entire clique is whispering about it. I hear nothing else from Kren. I noticed that Yara was having a hard time trying to keep from bursting out laughing. There was a knock on the door. Yara ran to open it and relieved herself of her pent-up laughter, seemingly in response to the new arrivals. I had counted the number of places at the dining room table, and I had figured out that the couple in the doorway were probably the last guests. I didn't recognize them either until Vera shouted, Adrian, Arena, you too? Adrian, who seemed intensely embarrassed, rushed to Vera and told her, I'm terribly sorry about this, Vera. She insisted on dragging me along. Don't be sorry, dearest, Vera told him. This promises to be a grand entertainment. Was it the little girl who got you to come? What little girl? Adrian asked. Irina? She insisted on coming in that outlandish costume and on dragging me along with her. She threatened to divorce me if I didn't come. Vera's humor vanished as she asked Adrian. She what? Was this whole thing Irina's idea? Vera's eyes, as well as everyone else's, turned toward the open door, and the same stunned amazement appeared on everyone's face. Yara and Irina were standing in the doorway, grinning. Both of them wore identically dressed, in the same slacks and unusual work jacket. Both had the same long black hair hanging down to their shoulders, the same black eyebrows. They looked like sisters, gypsy sisters. I walked toward Irina mechanically, as if I were in a trance, and extended my hand to her. I have a feeling I knew you once, very long ago. Irina continued grinning. 
So Yara tells me. You must be her father. She's told me so much about that twin sister I look like. I'm not really sure I'd care to meet her. I'm stunned by the similarity, I told her. Irina said, I'm forever grateful to Yara. She made so many things clear to me when she told me about Vera's relation to Sabina Nachello. Irina looked exactly the way I would have expected her gypsy twin to look. She even seemed to be the same age. Of course, I haven't seen Sabina for 20 years, and I have no idea what she looks like today, I told her. My brief conversation was cut short by Vera, who regained control of herself after her shock at seeing the same similarity. Vera rushed toward Irina and pulled her from the doorway toward the staircase. You little rat, you're going to explain certain things to me. Irina beamed as she let herself be pulled up the staircase. It's you who are going to be doing the explaining, Comrade Krana. I finally understand what's been behind. Such a low, mean trick, Vera hissed, to send a little girl after me as Sabina Nashalo's daughter. You're going to tell me exactly how you learned. You're giving me far too much credit, Irina told her. I wasn't the one who masterminded. The two women disappeared into an upstairs room. While the scene on the staircase was taking place, Adrian had embraced Titus. Nice to see you again, Zabrin. What in the world is this all about, and why did Irina consider it so urgent for me to attend? Titus explained to Adrian, The event was originally to be a celebration of an engagement. Subsequently, it was to be a political discussion among workers. Finally, it disintegrated into an anarchic carnival. But I'm glad you came. That makes about four workers. Perhaps we could meet separately. Whose engagement is being celebrated? Adrian asked. Titus told him, my own engagement to Comrade Zabroka. Yasna? Adrian asked. Is she here? Yes, Adrian, Yasna told him. She was standing right next to him. Congratulations. But why was this so urgent to Irina? Do you know each other? Adrian asked. No, we never met, Yasna told him. Then she asked Yara, are they all here now? Let's start eating before everything gets cold. They're all here now, Yara told her. Myrna stroked Lavney's hand and begged, since you've stayed this long, surely you'll stay for dinner. Mark seemed uneasy. I would infinitely prefer to invite you to dine with me in a quiet restaurant. Believe me when I tell you that you have nothing at all in common with these people. They may all have been Louisa's friend at one time, but that's not an adequate reason for you to be so tolerant of what they've become. No one's ever said such beautiful things to me, Myrna said, kissing his cheek. But please stay, just for the meal. I find these people so interesting. I would call them bizarre, Mark told her, but he was once again defeated by her. Holding on to her hand, he accompanied her to the dining room. Titus stayed behind when everyone else left the living room. I was glad for the opportunity to ask him a question. I was disturbed by the comment you made to Adrian, I told him. You said there were four workers here who might meet and talk separately. Why did you say that to Adrian? He's an official, too. I count six workers, including Myrna, Yasna, and Vera's secretary, but not including Adrian. I was referring to workers potentially interested in a serious political discussion, Titus told me. And you included Adrian as a worker, I asked. Adrian is a prostitute, he told me. A what? A prostitute, he repeated. If he only realized what that Krenna woman had done to his life, he would see that his place is with the working class. Are you serious, I asked. She literally bought him, he said. Adrian is a kept man. He's that woman's slave. I said loudly, I had thought that was how most officials reached their posts. Vera Krenna herself, for instance. Just as I finished that comment, Vera and Irina came rushing down the staircase. I blushed. It was the second time I had shouted an insult within earshot of the person I insulted. Yasna called from the living room. Titus, Vera, we're waiting to start. Titus and I were the last to go take our places at the table. Yasna and Titus faced each other across the length of the table. I took the last empty chair at Yasna's end of the table, next to Irina and directly across from Zednik. As I sat down, I noticed Yara throwing a questioning glance at Irina, who had also just sat down. Irina raised her black eyebrow and winked at Yara, who smiled and poked Zednik. I figured out that Irina was part of the conspiracy. Yasna had noticed nothing. Suddenly, someone was poking me on the shoulder. Adrian, sitting on the other side of Irina, was extending his hand to me behind Irina's back. Yarastan Vocek! I didn't recognize you when I came in! Adrian shouted. I'm surprised we didn't run into each other during prison all those years we spent there. I extended my hand to him, but I couldn't turn my eyes past the gypsy sitting next to me. Looking at Irina, I asked Adrian, Did you happen to run into Jan Sedlak during those years? He spent the rest of his life there. As I said this, I noticed Myrna, who was directly in my line of vision to the right of Irina. She was sitting at the opposite corner of the table from me, at Titus's end, and next to Mark. She momentarily stopped smiling at Mark and stared at me. Adrian said, I didn't know about Jan Sedlak until after my release, when Yasna told me. Yasna said loudly, And look at Jan's sister carrying on with the man responsible for those arrests. 
Adrian whistled crudely and asked, Is she Jan Sedluk's sister? Irina whispered to me, Aren't you relieved you didn't run into Adrian? Yet you married him, I whispered to her. Just for the sake of this experience, she told me cryptically. Myrna and Mark looked into each other's eyes and seemed not to hear the references to them, although I was sure Myrna's ears were picking up every sound. Adrian said sarcastically, Some people will do anything at all to get themselves another title. Irina said, Yes, Adrian, some people certainly will. Titus addressed himself to me, as if he were continuing his early observations about Irina. It is important to distinguish a proletarian, who has no choice in the matter, from a member of the exploiting group, who enjoys a certain amount of so-called free will. Myrna said to Mark, I believe we're the subject of conversation, dearest. Yara pulled a serving dish toward her and asked, What's everyone waiting for? I'm starving. Can I start? As soon as Yara started eating, all eyes turned to Mark. He suddenly forgot Myrna and started shoveling mounds from each platter onto the plate. Adrian, who sat directly across from him, shoved him the bread platter. Mark already had three slices of bread next to his plate. Adrian asked, More bread, Comrade Glavney? Lifting a fork filled with food to his mouth, Mark told Adrian, Later, thank you. Adrian, encouraged by the glances Yasna was giving him, asked Mark, You know who I am, don't you, Comrade Glavney? Of course, Pavershan. It's not a secret, Mark told him between mouthfuls. Did you also know me five years ago when I came to your office looking for a job? Adrian asked. If I'm not mistaken, you came to my office parading as the bank director, Kren, Mark remembered. Vera, sitting directly across from Myrna, and until then staring at Myrna with fascination, turned to Adrian, who sat right next to her, and asked, You introduced yourself as my husband? You never told me about that. Adrian continued to address his remarks to Mark. I had just been released after six years in prison, only to learn that you were married, Vera. I needed a job, and Glavney would never have made an appointment with a less important person. Isn't that so, Comrade Glavney? There were no openings in any case, Mark told him. Adrian continued, My real reason for coming to you, Comrade Glavney, wasn't to get a job, but to ask how it had happened that the two people who had once worked at the same factory had met such different fates. There you were, in one of the, shall we say, plusher offices of the bureaucracy, and already starting to fatten yourself on imported delicacies. While there I was, your former fellow worker, skinny as a broom, after six years in prison, without the slightest prospects. Mark told him, The explanation is very simple, Parvashan. You're an idiot. Irina laughed, but I noticed that Myrna's grin left her face. She gulped, got up abruptly, and rushed to the kitchen, biting her lip. She seemed to be on the verge of tears. Yara started to rise, but I got up and ran after Myrna. I found her pressing her body against the kitchen wall, beating both fists against it. I shook her and asked, Haven't you played enough of your game? Myrna, obviously repressing the urge to cry, told me, No, love, my game is only beginning. Mark rushed into the kitchen, pulled me away from Myrna, saying, Excuse me, comrade, and asked her, Is everything all right, my dear? Myrna's grin returned, I'm fine now, dearest. I, I swallowed a fish bone. When the three of us returned to the dining room table, Vera and Irina were shouting at each other across Adrian's back, since he was sitting in between them. Their argument would have been incomprehensible to me if I hadn't learned some of the details from your previous two letters. Vera, the boss, was shouting to her secretary. You'll pay dearly for this, Irina. I should have known it was you. You've been dying to do this to me ever since I exposed that sex maniac who was rector of the university. That act made you the champion of revolutionary morality, the heroine of the day, Irina shouted back. What an incredible sham. If anyone had known then that all you wanted was to take the rector's place, that all you wanted was to go to bed with one of... Vera reached across Adrian at Irina's throat and screeched, Shut your trap, you little... Adrian pulled Vera's arm away from Irina and asked, seemingly intensely embarrassed, Couldn't you two discuss these questions privately some other time? Irina shouted at Adrian, Jerk, you're the medium through whom she acted all these years, the front that kept people from seeing what she was, the errand boy who carried her public image. Adrian, holding both of Vera's hands down, shouted, shouted angrily at Irina, Shut up! You're making fools out of all of us! Irina suddenly became calm, like a rebel who had decided to spit into her boss's face coldly and deliberately. If you had only told me, when we were students together, that I looked like a little girl you had wanted to sleep with. Vera, straining under Adrian's grasp, shouted, Beast! Unscrupulous beast! I never did you any harm. She started to cry. Irina shouted, You've taken half my life, Vera. Why did you have to spin such an intricate web around me? I could have spared you all your trouble. If you'd only told me what you wanted fifteen years ago, I could have told you right then that I had no desire to share your bed, even for an instant, because I can only make love to men. Vera cried pathetically. Please stop it, Irina. Please. 
Yara reached across Zednik to pull Yasna's sleeve and asked in a whisper, Fifteen years ago? That was when Vera lived with you? Did you know about Irina already then? Yasna angrily swatted Yara's hand away from her arm and shook her head in the negative. Then she got up, walked toward Vera, and pulled her up from her chair. Vera sobbed. Please help me. Yasna accompanied her to the kitchen. Everyone's eyes followed them except Mark's. He went on eating. Irina, who was directly across from Yara and had heard Yara's question, said, Yasna didn't know. No one knew. When we were students, I thought Vera and I were good friends, and Adrian was her lover. Maybe I should have figured it all out then, but I've never been gifted at reading people's thoughts. No, that's wrong. It's not as if she didn't give me any clues. Everything she told me was a clue. But I'm as much of a goose as Adrian. I couldn't interpret a single clue until three weeks ago, when you asked me if my hair and my complexion were real, or if Vera had asked me to paint myself this way. Irina turned to me and said, Yara shouted, That explains everything, as soon as I told her I was three-quarters gypsy and had come into the world exactly this way. And the funny thing is, it did explain everything. How could I have been so dense? Pointing at Adrian, she told Yara, But I'm not as dense as he is. She's his boss, you know, and he simply refuses to believe anything I say about the boss. Have you been together with her for fifteen years? Yara asked again. But I couldn't see through her until you came, Irina said. When we were students, all she ever talked to me about was her romances, or rather, anti-romances. She told me what a clown her lover, Adrian, was. She never, she never felt anything but contempt for him. I didn't know him then. She'd boast to me, he's such a perfect front, isn't he? I never asked myself what he was a perfect front for. I assumed he was the front behind which she carried on her affair with Professor Krenn. But I didn't wonder what purpose such a front served. Adrian rose from the table, said, Excuse me, and apparently headed toward the bathroom. He looked like he was ready to vomit. Irina continued, After we graduated, she went on to study under Krenn. I got hired as a secretary in the rector's office. That was when I learned she felt nothing but contempt for Krenn as well. He was nothing more to her than a ladder to climb. Vera appeared in the kitchen doorway. Her face was pale and had a contorted expression, but she was no longer crying. All right, you little wench. Since we're bringing it all into the open, we might as well be complete and do justice to the past. You weren't merely hired by the rector's office. You were bought by the rector. He was in your bed before your training period was over. Don't single me out as the narrator of romances or as the one with contempt. Your feeling towards the rector were identical to mine toward Kren, and you narrated every gruesome detail with the greatest relish. After spending barely a month as the rector's secretary, you started talking about becoming assistant rector. You were waiting for the old man occupying that post to be forcefully retired. Vera turned to everyone in the room and asked dramatically, as if speaking from a platform, And how did this paragon of virtue intend to conquer that post? By marrying her boss. Unfortunately for our little Cinderella, the boss was not only already married, but was carrying on similar affairs with his two other secretaries. Irina shouted with venom, and that was when you started dreaming of replacing the rector, not only in his office, but in the bedrooms of his secretaries as well. Then that arrest twelve years ago almost spoiled it all for you. Your glorious ascent was interrupted. You came out so furious and so hysterical. You simply had to find a scapegoat. And what better scapegoat was there than poor, dumb Adrian? He'd be in your way in any case during your coming wedding ceremony with Kren. If they'd kept you in jail for only half a year... You'd have come out to find me married to the rector, occupying the office of assistant rector, and free for good from your attentions. The rector loved me and promised to divorce his wife. Vera smiled and said sarcastically, He made the same promise to both of the other secretaries. You're lying, Arena shouted. You hated that man. Until now I didn't understand your fierce hatred toward him. You were jealous of him. You conceived your scheme of driving him out with that scandal the moment you realized he really did love me. I didn't love him, I admit it. How else does one become someone in this society except by selling oneself to a high official? Vera hissed. I regret everything I ever did for you, Irina. You'll regret it even more before I'm through with you, Irina shouted. Vera retorted. You're nothing but the commonest dirt. In that respect, we're twins, Irina told him. We both came out of the same cesspool. But as soon as you got out, you shoved me further in. I wouldn't have done that to you if I'd gotten out first. Never forget that. But you beat me to it. You acquired free will, and in the same act, deprived me of mine. First you had Cran force the retirement of the old assistant rector, and then you replaced him. But robbing me of that post wasn't enough for you. You had to destroy the rest of my prospects as well. Comrade Veronese married Professor Cran and immediately began her glorious campaign to clear the university of decadent bourgeois remnants, exposing the rector of the university for sexual abuses. 
As soon as the rector was ousted and jailed, Comrade Nice Krenna replaced him as rector of the university and all hailed the arrival of a new day. No more sexual abuses, the end of bourgeois decadence, a great step toward womanhood, all accomplished with one single arrest. But to satisfy the libertines in the population, the police had to add a charge about his having embuzzled public funds for private purposes. Or did you add that just for seasoning? Have you met a single official who hasn't embezzled public funds for his country cottages and journeys? And he was finished off with such an exemplary trial. A 20-year sentence. Do you even know that he died during his first year in prison? Do you care? Don't shout to me about caring, you ruthless hypocrite. Do you care how much this outburst of yours is going to cost me? Vera asked. Irina told her, you're right, I could care less. Do you really think people would rather be ruled by you than that fat man across from you? Mark stirred to rise from the table, but Myrna told him, don't be offended, I'm sure she didn't mean it. Irina winked at Myrna and said, of course I didn't. If I have to be ruled, I'd far rather be ruled by him. He'd be far too busy eating to have time to destroy people's lives. I would infinitely prefer his unquenchable hunger for food to that unquenchable hunger for power the power to manipulate the lives of thousands in order to satisfy the secret innermost desire to crawl into the bed of a little gypsy. Vera had snatched a teapot from the unoccupied end of the table. Yasna ran toward her from the kitchen doorway, but reached her too late to stop Vera from flinging the pot with hot tea. The teapot barely missed my head and shattered on Adrian's unoccupied chair, splashing its contents on Titus. Irina said to Titus, You see? You're the ones who face the consequences. How right you are to say a proletarian is the one who has no choice. Before she hooked Kren, we were equals. By the time she was rector, I had become common dirt, as she now calls it. All the prospects I had looked forward to for ten years were ruined. I literally had no alternatives left, no choice. I knew she was a sham. I knew she had married Kren in order to become rector of the university. I knew that her sole qualification for that post were located a few centimeters above and below her waist. But I was bound and gagged. She had me in her office every day. When she was promoted to the ideological commission, she called me to her mansion several nights a week and on weekends. What could I do? Once, when she was still rector, I stormed out of her office, infuriated by the trivialty for which she had called me in. I only wanted you by my side. You're my favorite, she told me. I was furious. Your favorite secretary, I shouted. I threatened to expose her whole sham. You breathe a word, she said, and what do you think everyone will say about the spiteful, jealous secretary? You don't suppose anyone will believe you, do you? They might even jail you as the former rector's accomplice. I couldn't even dream of leaving the rector's office anymore. In order to get any kind of decent job somewhere, I needed a recommendation from the rector of the university, Comrade Vera Krenna. I had no choice. I was literally a proletarian. I asked Irina, what did you accomplish by marrying Adrian? Much less than I'd hoped, she told me. I didn't meet him until he was released from prison. I was overjoyed to learn he was the one who had been her lover, and I was doubly attracted to him when he told me how Vera had victimized him by associating him with a spy ring and claiming he tried to incriminate her. Besides which, he was my age, unlike the rector or Vera's comrade, Professor Kren. But my only satisfaction with Adrian was to parade him in front of Vera in the rector's office right after we were married. I still had no choice. She was shocked when I told her we were married, and that shocked is all I ever accomplished with him. She immediately turned him into her own private roll of toilet paper. She knew him far better than I did. The second or third time he came for me, she made eyes at him and said, Such a talented comrade is wasting away in the post of a lowly researcher. She knew she was about to be appointed to deputy minister for the ideological commission, thanks to Kren's influence, and she knew from there she'd have almost as much power as Kren himself. She told Adrian, Irina and I will find you a post more in keeping with your talents. That's right, Irina and I, my dog and I. I tried to stop Adrian from accepting anything from that woman, but he turned to Jelly, waiting for its mold. There was no talking to him. He accepted a post on the Secretariat of the Standard of Living Commission, and I became Comrade Krenna's private secretary. My reward, I thought, if I'd only known I was the one she was after. Wherever she went, Adrian and I tagged along. On trips, the three of us always shared the same suite. The rumor started to circulate that Adrian was her lover, and she became popular for having the courage to display her lover in public. Kren became the subject of jokes. What no one knew was that Adrian was nothing more to her than a dog that it was her personal secretary whom... Vera hissed from the doorway. I never touched you, Irina, not once. Irina turned to Vera with hatred. I wish you had touched me 15 years ago. Everything would have been perfectly clear at the start. I would have destroyed your desire at its origin. I would have made you want to kill me instead of dragging me behind you, bound up in your net. 
You didn't dare touch me, and the more you postponed showing your hand, the more you feared my response. You were deathly afraid your bubble would burst, and you were right. My first chance to free myself of you didn't come until the current rebellion broke out. Nothing in my memory was so exciting as the uproar that started to spread to every sector of the society. That was when I realized I had become your political bar barometer. The more excited I became about the anti-bureaucratic activity, the more loudly you shouted about the need to reform the bureaucracy. And thanks to me, you found yourself riding on the crest of the popular wave. When the strikes broke out and there were calls for the formation of workers' councils, I went wild with joy. I looked forward to the overthrow of the entire bureaucracy, and you stayed right up behind me, giving speech after speech in support of the most radical strikes. I wondered if you'd lost your senses. I knew I, and the vast majority, had everything to gain from the overthrow of the entire bureaucracy. But you? You had everything to lose. I wondered if you really expected to become the head worker of the head workers' council, or if you pictured yourself as liberty in the painting by Delacroix. It wasn't until Yara's visit that I started to get an insight into the sordid motives behind your sudden populism. Adrian, who reappeared in the entranceway from the living room, stared blankly at Irina. Vera, still leaning on the doorway to the kitchen, commented, So on the basis of a twelve-year-old girl's gossip, you decided to drive a knife into me. Not quite, Comrade Krenna, Irina told her. Not on the basis of anyone's gossip, but on the basis of the testimony of a room full of people whose lives you've destroyed and during a period when the entire population is exposing those responsible for the arrests and the imprisonments. When I learned about Sabina, I also learned that Adrian wasn't the only one of your former comrades who lo whose life you destroyed. Adrian spent six years in prison because of you. Irina turned to me and asked, How many years did you spend there? Eight complete years, I told her. Do you know why, she asked. I said, I thought I knew. I'll remind you in case you forgot, Irina said to me. Comrade Veronese gave testimony to the effect that all her former comrades had been members of a totally fictional spy ring. Then she turned to Titus and asked him, How long did you spend there? A year, Titus told her. But I should tell you I wasn't arrested at the same time. I don't see that it matters, Irina said. And she asked Yara, How many years did your uncle spend? He never came out, Yara told her. Irina exclaimed, He died in prison, like the former rector. Yasna, Yasna cut her short. I'm sorry to ruin your performance, but you're missing your mark. How long did you have to spend? Irina asked. Two days, Yasna told her. But the person responsible for my arrest, and for all the other arrests, is sitting across the table from you, and his name isn't Vera. Adrian shouted from the hallway, That's right, Irina. It was Glavny who was responsible for those arrests. Yasna told Irina, We were all arrested because of a letter that was delivered. Irina asked Yasna indignantly, Why are you protecting her? That letter was an invention of the police. Adrian shouted, I've told you repeatedly, Irina, some spies actually did try to get in contact with us, and it was undoubtedly Glavny who told the police I was corresponding with them. Why else would he have been so rude to me when I went to see him after my release? I asked Adrian, do you still today believe Luisa Nachula was a spy? Adrian told me, during my first prison term, the police showed me an article about her in the foreign press. That article merely proved she had immigrated with her companion and their daughters, I told him. Irina shouted at Adrian, Idiot! You'd believe the police if they told you the sun was a triangle. Yara told her new friend insistently, But there really was a letter, Irina. I remember you're telling me, but are you sure you didn't learn about that letter from the same rumor started by the police? Irina asked Yara. I told her, Irina, I've been carrying on a very stimulating correspondence with the person who sent those letters 12 years ago, Sabina Nacholo's sister, or rather, Luisa Nacholo's daughter, Sophia. Adrian shouted victoriously, Who's the idiot, Irina? Yasna told Irina, A messenger tried to deliver Sophia's letters to all the people she'd known in the carton plant eight years earlier. She turned angrily to Adrian and told him, Sophia was no spy. She was trying to reach us because she considered us the only friends she had in the world. Sophia learned that only one of those letters reached its destination, one delivered to someone who was an official at that time. Vera, Adrian, and I were university students at that time. Yarostan and Jan were steelworkers. Comrade Glavny had recently become head of the party organization of the plant where we had all worked. Adrian exclaimed, and he was the one who was contacted. He cleared himself by telling the police the spies had contacted me. Mark told Adrian angrily, the police asked me if I knew you. I had no idea why they wanted to know that, and all they told them was that I had once known you. It would have been ridiculous to deny it. We had both been arrested in the same plant eight years earlier. Adrian apparently intended to answer, but Mark got up abruptly and told Myrna, I don't see the point of all these uncontrolled emotional outbursts, these accusations by uninformed ignoramuses, and I must say I don't find this gathering the slightest bit interesting. 
Myrna took his arm again and begged, Please, Mark, at least stay through dessert. I'm sorry, he told her. I'm already late for an important meeting, which I would have called off if... Myrna got up, placed her lips near his, and knew she had defeated him again already before she told him. Oh, please do call it off, dearest. Use the phone in the bedroom upstairs. And while you're at it, would you please postpone my airline reservation by a day? There are certain things I simply must discuss with you, but I can't leave this gathering. Please understand I owe it to Louisa to try to communicate with these people who seem so convinced she was a spy. Surely you understand she's still extremely concerned about that charge. I can understand her concern, Mark said, but surely this is not the most fruitful way to clear her of the charge. Adrian shouted from the hallway, The only fruitful way is to accuse someone else, the way you did, Glavny. Mark asked Myrna, Doesn't that prove my point? Myrna shook her head. Very well, my dear. In whose name are those reservations? he asked her. Myrna was flustered. Why, the name I gave your secretary when I came to see you. Wait a second. Her game almost ended. I started grinning. Yara fidgeted nervously. Myrna ran to the living room and returned with a little leather purse. She rummaged inside. Here it is. It's in the name of Matthews. Myrna Matthews.